Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Naima Novetsky. In our last year, we discussed the first half of Ayikra Perak Yudzayin, looking at the laws of slaughtering outside the Mikdash. We saw that it is prohibited to sacrifice to Hashem on private altars wherever one pleases, and also how, according to many commentators, in the period of the wilderness, it was also prohibited to slaughter even to eat meat for pleasure outside the Mikdash. One needed to instead bring the animal as a sacrifice, and only in that setting eat of it. Today, we'll move to the second half of the chapter, to those laws dealing with eating and covering blood, laws which highlight the Torah's emphasis on the sanctity of all life. The centrality of the issue of blood to our chapter is underscored by the repeated usage of the two words dam, blood, and nefesh, soul, throughout the chapter. These words might be seen as milim manchot, or guiding words, words which repeat throughout a unit of text and serve to highlight some theme or message. In our case, the word dam, blood, appears 13 times, making it 40 times more prevalent here than in Tanakh as a whole. Similarly, the word nefesh appears nine times, 13 times more than usual. Finally, variations of the phrase v'hadam hohanefesh and the blood is the soul, also repeat four times, connecting the two words and explicitly showing the relationship between them. Blood stands for vitality. It's also worth noting that the word dam, blood, appears not only in the second half of the chapter, where we might have expected it, but also, as we saw in last class, in the first half of the chapter, when the slaughtering of animals outside the Mikdash was compared to spilling blood. This suggests that somehow the motif of spilling blood and the sanctity of life might be one of the unifying factors between the two halves of our chapter. So let's look at the laws inside, starting with verse 10. The ish ish mi beit Yisrael umin hager hagar betocham asher yochal koldam, any man of the house of Israel or of the stranger who lives among them who eats any kind of blood, benatati panai ba'ish ha'ochelet etadam, I will set my face against that soul who eats blood. I will cut him off from among his people. Here we see that the punishment for eating blood is karit, the same punishment mentioned by the prohibitions in the first half of the chapter. The exact nature of this punishment is not clear. It might refer to an early death, to death without children, or perhaps to losing out on one's portion in the next world. The specific language used in our verse of Hashem setting his face against someone and cutting him off is worth noting, as it's somewhat unique. Interestingly, besides in our verse, there are only two other commandments whose punishment is described in this manner. The prohibitions against worship of the molech, apparently a form of idolatry, and the prohibition against divination. The identical language used in the three cases makes us wonder if there's some connection between the three. Verses 11 and 12 move on to explain the reasoning behind the command. Pasuk Yud Aleph Ki nefesh habatsar badamhi v'ani natativ lachem al hamizbeach l'chaper al nafshotechem ki adam hu banefesh yachaper For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of its life. Pasuk Yud Bet Akin amarti livnei Yisrael kol nefesh mikem lo tochadam Therefore, I have said to the children of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, 
Neither shall any stranger who lives as a foreigner among you eat blood. These verses appear to set out two reasons for the prohibition. Both the fact that blood symbolizes life and the fact that it plays an atoning role on the Mizbeach, on the altar. We'll come back to these in a few minutes. Verses 13 and 14 then continue with another set of laws connected to blood. The ish ish mibnei Yisrael umin hager hagar betocham asher yetzud seid chaya o'of asher yeachel v'shafach adamo v'chisahu v'afar. Every man of Israel who hunts an animal or a bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. Ki nefesh kol basar damo v'nafshohu v'omar levnei Yisrael dam kol basar lo tochelu ki nefesh kol basar damohi kol ochlav yikaret. For the life of all flesh, its blood is with its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any kind of flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats of it shall be cut off. These verses refer to the hunting of non-domesticated animals, animals which cannot be brought as a sacrifice, but are permitted to eat. When killing such animals for food, we are told that their blood too may not be eaten, and in addition, that the spilled blood must be covered. The reasoning given is similar to what we read before. Because the animal's blood represents its life. To summarize what we've seen, I think that when we initially read our unit, we tend to think that it speaks of one prohibition and one obligation. The prohibition to eat blood of domesticated animals and the obligation to cover blood of non-domesticated chayot. Really though, our verses speak of two prohibitions and two obligations. The Torah presents two scenarios, the killing of domesticated animals fit for sacrifices and the killing of non-domesticated animals unfit for sacrifices. Regarding each, the Torah tells us both that it is prohibited to eat their blood and what to do with the blood that is spilled. In the first scenario, when the animal slaughtered is fit for sacrifice, the blood is sprinkled on the altar and serves as atonement. In other cases, when the animal is not fit to be brought as a korban, the blood must instead be covered. Our chapter is not the first time in which the laws regarding blood appear in Torah. In fact, the prohibition to eat blood comes up multiple times throughout Humash. Already in Breshit Perik Teth, verse 4, we see Hashem commanding Noach, Ach basar Hashem tells Noach after the flood that he may eat meat, but with one condition, that he should not eat its blood. In addition, in both Vayikra Peregimel and Vayikra Peregzayin, chapters 3 and 7, in the context of the laws of the Korban Shlamim, the peace offering, there is similarly a warning against eating blood. Again, though man is allowed to eat from the Korban and partake of its meat, he is reminded that he may not eat of the animal's blood. In both of these chapters in the beginning of Sefer Vayikra, the warning is connected to a second prohibition, kol chelev v'chol dam lo tochelu. Hashem tells the people that they may not eat both the blood and the chelev, or the fat, of the animal being sacrificed. The juxtaposition of the two commands might suggest that they share some common reasoning or goal. Finally, later in Dvarim Perik Yudbet, the chapter we spoke about yesterday, the prohibition is repeated yet again. Rak hadam lo tochelu. The context here is the permissibility of eating basar ta'ava, eating meat for pleasure and not as part of a sacrifice, when in Israel. Interestingly, 
with regards to this meat, as opposed to meat from chayot, from non-domesticated animals, there's no obligation to cover the blood. It may simply be spilled out. There's one last directive worth comparing to our verses. Baikra chapter 19, verse 26 states, Lo tochlu al hadam, literally, do not eat on the blood. Though there's much debate as to what's included in this prohibition, on a pshat level, according to the simple sense of the verses, it would seem to be somewhat connected to eating blood. Interestingly, the law is joined with a seemingly unrelated one, lo tenachashu velo to'oninu, the prohibition against divination. Again, we wonder if the juxtaposition is significant and what it is telling us about the relationship between the two laws. The fact that not eating blood is discussed so many times highlights the importance that Tanakh gives to it. But the various contexts and formulations also raise several questions. First, what's the connection between chalev and dam, between fat and blood? What might this teach us about the prohibition? Second, why in some cases, when slaughtering domesticated animals as part of the sacrificial service, is the prohibited blood sprinkled on the altar, while in other cases, when hunting non-domesticated animals, it is covered, and yet in other cases, upon arrival in Israel when slaughtering for food, is the blood simply spilled out? What is the connection between the laws of blood and the prohibition of divination? And finally, what do all the various appearances suggest about the reason for the prohibition? Let's delve into this last question and hopefully answer the others along the way. As we mentioned earlier, our chapter offers two main explanations, one dealing with the sanctity of life and one with atonement on the altar. It's not clear which is the primary explanation or if both are equal. Yet a third explanation might be derived from the context of divination in Vayikra Perik Yutet. This context suggests that somehow eating blood is related to idolatrous practices and therefore prohibited. We'll see that this reason too, though not explicit, might be hinted at in our verses. Let's begin with the first reason stated in verse 11. Kinefesh habasar badamhi. What does that mean? In its most simple sense, it seems that the verse is simply highlighting that all life is sacred. The Torah tells us that though we may kill and eat animals, as we do so, we must remember that we just took a life. The animal's blood represents its life force, its soul, and to eat that would be to belittle the fact that the animal too was a living being. Ramban writes, Ein ra'oi nefesh she'ochal nefesh, kenefeshot kulan na'kelhina, it's not proper that one soul should consume another, for after all, we all belong to Hashem. This principle of the sanctity of life also mandates what we do with the blood after it is spilled. Not only do we not eat the blood, but when offering sacrifices, we instead sprinkle it on the altar. We try to sanctify the life that we took. When this is not possible, as when the animal being killed is a chaya, not fit to be sacrificed, we cover the blood instead. Perhaps this is meant to show that we are embarrassed by our act. We don't want to flaunt the killing. We must though still ask, then how come after arriving in Israel, when someone slaughters a domesticated animal for food, why is he allowed to simply spill the blood without covering? It's possible that this is because originally, as we spoke about last class, it was prohibited totally to kill such animals for food, 
one had to offer them as a sacrifice and only in such a setting eat of the meat. If so, originally the blood of all domesticated animals was sprinkled on the altar and sanctified. Ramban reads a second idea into our phrase, ki nefesh habasar badamhi. He suggests that when eating an animal's life force and soul, the animal's soul get in, gets intertwined with the human soul which consumed it, leading man to become closer to beast. This idea is a variation of the concept of you are what you eat. This is similar to the Ramban's explanation of the laws of Kashrut. In that context, he suggests that predatory animals specifically are prohibited, lest in eating them we similarly become predatory in nature. If so, the prohibition against eating blood has a second aspect, to ensure that man not sink to the level of animal. According to this reasoning, the two halves of our chapter might revolve around the common theme. Though the Torah allows the eating of animals, it does so only grudgingly and with conditions. You can slaughter domesticated animals in the wilderness, but only as part of the sacrificial service. And if you kill them, you cannot eat their blood, but must instead sprinkle it on the altar. Try to sanctify the life that you took, so it will not be for naught. Both halves of the chapter then focus on the sanctity of all life, including that of animals. Moving to the second explanation given in the verses for the prohibition against eating blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to atone for your souls. Until now, we have suggested that the sprinkling of the blood on the altar might just be a consequence of the prohibition not to eat blood, a need to do something positive with the blood which we could not eat. It's possible, however, that such a sprinkling is a desired positive action in its own right, necessary in and of itself. Hashem says that He gave us the blood to atone for our sins. This suggests that similar to sacrifices as a whole, the blood of an animal plays a role in kapara, in atonement. Ramban explains that when bringing a sacrifice, a person must view the animal as his replacement. He should recognize how every part of it stands in for him. He really is the one who deserves to be punished, but the animal, and especially its blood, its life, comes in his stead. Ramban writes, Tiva Hashem, ki kasher yechata, yavi korban, yismoch yadav alav keneged hamaaseh, v'yidvadeh befiv keneged hadibor, v'yisrof be'esh hakerev v'haklayot shehem klei hamachshava v'hatava. Hashem commanded that when we bring a sin offering, we place our hands upon it representative of the hands which did the misdeed, and we confess with our mouths whose speech has erred, and we, burn it, and we burn its insides and its kidneys, the vessels of thought and desire. Rabban continues, And he spilled the blood on the altar in place of his own blood. As we sacrifice, we must think that it is we, not the animal, that is worthy of death, except that Hashem in His mercy found for us a substitute in the blood of the animal. This reading suggests that regardless of the principle of the sanctity of life, we would not be able to eat blood because sprinkling it on the altar is necessary for our repentance and atonement. If so, 
we could suggest that the juxtaposition of the prohibitions not to eat fat and not to eat blood that we saw in Vayikra Paragimel and Paragzayin is related to this idea. Both are perhaps prohibited because both need to be given to Hashem. They are chelet gavoa and do not belong to us. According to this approach, we might wonder why the blood of animals which can't be sacrificed is also prohibited. After all, they play no role in atonement. They are not chelet gavoa, they are not Hashem's portion. Their blood does not go to Him. It's possible that the Torah simply did not differentiate to ensure that one does not make a mistake. Or, perhaps such animals are prohibited only due to one of the other reasons offered for the prohibition. Either the first reason we spoke about above, the sanctity of life, or perhaps the reason we are about to discuss, blood's connection to idolatry. So moving to this third reason for the prohibition. As we mentioned earlier, though our verses make no explicit connection between blood and idolatrous actions, Vayikra 19's mention of the prohibition of divination in the context of blood might suggest that there is. The Rambam is probably the commentator most known for understanding the prohibition in this manner. He explains that foreign peoples used to eat blood as a means of connecting to demons, so as to engage in divination. As such, the Torah prohibited eating blood to distance us from such idolatrous practices. He further supports his explanation by pointing out, as we noted earlier, that the wording of the punishment, the natati fanai benefesha is identical to that used by the punishment for the practice of divination. According to him, then, the prohibitions of both halves of the chapter, both the prohibition to sacrifice outside of the Mikdash and the prohibition to eat blood, all stem from the same fear that people will sacrifice to and commune with Seirim, with demons. He assumes that, was it, that what was explicit in the reasoning for the prohibitions of the first half of the chapter, and so that they shall not sacrifice their sacrifices to these goat demons, is true for the prohibitions of the second half as well. According to the Rambam's approach, it's clear why the prohibition relates not only to those animals brought as sacrifice, but also to non-domesticated animals, as these are hunted in the wild, the believed abode of the goat demons. It was essential that their blood too not be eaten. So we have seen two very different outlooks on the prohibition. Ramban suggests that it has two very positive goals. It ensures that we remember and value the sanctity of all life, and it plays an important role in atonement. The Rambam, in contrast, suggests that the prohibition is simply a preventative measure, lest we seek to commune with demons. This difference of opinion between Ramban and the Rambam regarding the laws of blood is consistent with their views on sacrifices as a whole. While the Rambam views sacrifices as a bidiyavad, a concession to humans, a means to wean the nation away from idolatrous practices, Ramban views them as a lachatchila, a positive action in their own right an act of devotion which is pleasing to Hashem and an effective means of attaining closeness and atonement. With this, let us move to the last two verses of the chapter, what we had, early call, what he, we had earlier called an appendix to our unit. Pasuk Tedvav V'chol nefesh asher tochal nevela utrefa v'ezrach uvagir v'chibes begadav v'rachat b'mayim v'tamer ha'arev v'taher the 
every person that eats a nevila or a trefa, an animal which died a natural death without being slaughtered, or an animal which was preyed upon by another predator, must wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, and be impure until the evening, and only then shall he be clean. What is the connection between this law and the other laws of the chapter? Tamir Granot suggests that maybe the reason for the impure status of such an individual relates to the laws of blood we have been speaking about. When slaughtering an animal, its blood leaves its body, and it no longer contains remnants of its original vitality. As such, it does not cause impurity. In contrast, a nevela, even though it is dead, since it has not been slaughtered, it still has its blood, symbol of its vitality, trapped inside its body. When eating of it, then, one becomes impure. Once again, then, we have a law whose purpose is to remind us of the sanctity of life. I want to end with a short discussion of the placement of our chapter in the larger context of Sefer Vayikra. According to Rav David Tzvi Hoffman, our chapter marks the end of the first half of the Sefer. Drawing off the verse, Batem tiyuli mamlechat koanim v'goy kadosh, and you shall be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, he suggests that the book be divided into two, with each half of the book matching one of these terms. The first 17 chapters focus on being a mamlechat koanim, and they deal with laws connected to the Mikdash and related priestly functions. The rest of the book speaks of being a goy kadosh, the laws relating to holiness, holiness of the people, time, and land. The first half of the book further splits into two. Vayikra chapters 1 through 10 speak of the laws of sacrifices, the olah, shlamim, mincha, and chatat, and the sanctification of the Midash as a whole. Chapters 11 to 16 move to focus on various forms of impurity, discussing both the conditions which cause impurity, forbidden foods, a birthing mother, tarat, certain bodily emission, and then the purification process, which provides the correctives to such defilement, including Avodat Yom Kippurim, which serves to re-sanctify the defiled Mikdash. These two units progress from inside to out and back inside. We begin with laws connected to sacrificial service, which take place in the confines of the Mikdash, and move to laws of impurity, conditions which keep someone outside, as he's unable to enter the Mikdash. But then we close with the processes which allow them to be once again, to once again come back inside. Our chapter serves an, as an appendix to the two units, as it prohibits external sacrifices, reiterating the importance of serving Hashem in the Mikdash itself. It further connects inside and outside, as it teaches us to be Mikdash the whole, to sanctify even mundane actions. When we eat meat, we should bring it as a sacrifice. When we slaughter the animal, we should sprinkle its blood as atonement on the altar. In all our actions, we should learn how to bring the holy into the mundane and turn the mundane into the holy. Tomorrow, in Yerta Hashem, we will open the second half of the book, which continues to teach us how to sanctify all aspects of life and move into a discussion of its first set of laws, the various prohibited sexual activities.